0: ben jarofsky show for tuesday april 4th starts now on today's show ben welcomes sam holloway to the show to talk the mayor's race that's right chicago it's election day The Ben Jarofsky Show brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois Indiana the Chicago Federation of Labor the Chicago Teachers Union and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink and so much more Hey, you like Benjamin Jarofsky I know you do. That's why you're here Head on over to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky to find more cool stuff from Ben that's J-O-R-A, V is in victory, S-K-Y.
1: Hello again, everybody. Ben Jorowski here. We're calling this Kingdom of Fear Tuesday, and here's why. In reality, it's Election Day uh, in the city of Chicago. Actually, it's so funny that I'm going to be talking about Election Day in the city of Chicago because it's like a momentous day in the country, the United States. Donald Trump, former president, was arraigned on uh, corruption charges uh, in New York City. And uh, yes, <laughs> our former president. Uh, is facing the consequences for having paid hush money to a porn star uh, to keep by her silence. uh, So that uh, what she wouldn't come forth and blab about how they had a one night affair, the worst, as she put it, 90 seconds of her life at uh, I think it was a country club, could have been a hotel room. I can't remember the details, ladies and gentlemen. I apologize for not knowing the intimate details of Donald Trump's one night affairs. Uh, anyway, there was a Jerry Butler song way, way a long time ago called One Night Affair. And that's what it was. And it's haunting Donald Trump. Magus lost its mind. But I live in Chicago. That doesn't matter to me. <laughs> we have a mayoral election in the city of Chicago. We'll get to Trump maybe to, uh, later in the conversation uh, with Sam Holloway, my distinguished guest. Definitely get on into it tomorrow with Monroe Anderson, who I know is feverishly following all the updates, uh, obsessively following it, waiting for his moment to talk about it tomorrow. Anyway, why do I call it Kingdom of Fear? Well, I got to give a shout out to start uh, to Neil Steinberg, ace columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times. He wrote a column the other day, I think it was Monday, can't recall exactly when, about autocracies blossoming all throughout the world, fascistic, nationalistic, in Israel and Hungary, and and right here in the United States. And one of the themes of his uh, essay that Neil Steinberg wrote is that people are afraid. And in that column, he cited a song I had never heard of. So shout out to Neil Steinberg, because I he opened my eyes to a great, great title, if nothing else. A Warren Zevon song, which Warren Zevon co-wrote with Hunter Thompson, the great journalist. And it's called, quote, you're a whole different person when you are scared. And that's a title alone just like blew my mind. I'm like, yes. Never has one title said so much. You are a whole different person when you are scared. And I saw, I see that right here in the city of Chicago right now. Chicago is poised, poised, I tell you, to elect as its next mayor, Paul Vallis, who is a MAGA man. He has spent the last two years courting the hard right. Every position that liberal Northsiders fundamentally believes in, Paul Vallis has mocked, dismissed, and opposed over the last two years. What is it? Abortion rights? You know, mask wearing? Vaccines? You know, attitudes about criminal justice? Transphobic notions? He's put forth. He mocked Governor Pritzker's daughter? He's like a DeSantis guy? I mean, this is what... Critical race theory? Oh, my God. His notions of critical race theory are so bizarre and twisted and weird. Paul Vallis apparently believes, I can't say this enough, that if you teach children the history of race relations, white children will rebel against their parents and will never eat their broccoli again, and black children will become criminals. Somehow or other, that's in his brain, and you're about to elect him, Chicago, on the north side of Chicago where I reside and where my distinguished guest Sam Holloway resides. Our neighbors are just so eager to throw away all their liberal thoughts and embrace Paul Vallis. I see their signs when I walk down the street. Vallis, Vallis, Vallis. Why? Because they're afraid. They live in a kingdom of fear. Another line from the uh, song by Warren Zevon and Hunter Thompson. You're a whole different person when you're scared. Yeah, Chicago is just like, thrown out everything they supposedly believed in because they're scared. What they're scared of, I'm not quite sure. I think Sam has some thoughts on that. We're going to hear from Sam on that. But what they're afraid of exactly, I know it has to do with crime. Even though, as Alden Lowry, the distinguished demographer who comes on the show once a month or so, has said on this show and in his columns, the areas where people are most afraid are the areas with the lowest crime rate. Just... These are the facts, ladies and gentlemen. You want to look the other way? Bury your head? You can ignore them at your own peril. We're lining up. They just can't wait to vote for Paul Valens. And I got to tell you, folks, I see a correlation here between what went down this weekend uh, in the women's championship basketball game between LSU, Louisiana State University, and Iowa. I know, folks, we're a political talk show. You're going, Ben, why are you talking sports? Because there's a connection. I'm going to make that connection right now. So there's a guard, great shooting guard for Iowa. Caitlin Clark is her name, uh, and she caught the imagination of America as Iowa. She led Iowa on this run to the championship game. Great shooter. I, I'm a passionate basketball fan, and I must tell you right now, Caitlin Clark is an exceptional basketball player. One of the great basketball players of the 21st century. Well, college basketball players. We'll see how she does in the WNBA. The other thing about her that you need to know is she's white. And the University of Iowa is a predominantly white team. And when I say they caught America's imagination, I know. <laughs> I know how my beloved white people think. They're like, wow, a white star. Yes, I matter. I mean something. And so they rallied around her. I never saw so much interest in women's basketball in my life. People texting me. I'm watching the game. <laughs> yeah, you got caught up with the Caitlin Clark thing. Okay, it's all good. You know, it's all good. You get caught up in all that. Anyway, Caitlin Clark, great basketball player. known for a little trash talking. She's got this thing she does. She picked up from the wrestler, John Cena, where she goes, puts her hand in front of her face as if to say, you can't see me. Although you could go the other way. You know, I can't see you, but I'm just going with how they use it. All right. Fast forward to Sunday's championship game. LSU, a predominantly black team, defeated Iowa beat him pretty bad. Uh, And Angel Reese, an outstanding star on the LSU team, did the hand in the face thing right to Caitlin Clark. And white people, their minds exploded. That's the sound of the minds exploding. They were suddenly so upset by trash talking. And folks, I gotta say this right now, for the last two, three, four, five years, I've been hearing MAGA people denouncing woke and denouncing liberal Democrats as being snowflakes because they can't take hard truths because they can't take a little joking now and then. You can't say anything anymore. You have to look over your shoulder all the time. It's the woke crowd. That's like the theme, their anthem that drives them and motivates them. In fact, Paul Vallis, I get it all together. The man you're about to elect, woke people of the North side of Chicago, he's always denouncing woke too. I'm just saying, your shock and anger at Angel Reese for trash-talking Caitlin Clark, it sounds a little woke to me. I'm just saying. You sound a little woke to me We are so upset. Why are you so upset? David Axelrod. One of Sam Holloway's favorite political strategists, I said, <laughs> he's laughing. <laughs> I just had to say that, Sam. What David Aseran, the brains behind Mayor Daley's campaigns and Bill Clinton's campaigns and Barack Obama's campaigns, Rama Emanuel's campaigns. He was outraged. He tweeted a denunciation. Act like you've been here before. I'm so outraged. Like he discovered trash talking for the first time. It's only been going on for like, I don't know, Ever every boxer, every basketball player, every football player. Suddenly, she dared to trash talk Caitlin Clark. What an outrage. So I'm just kind of like drawing an analogy a similarity there, ladies and gentlemen, between like the anger and the upset that David Axelrods of the world felt when they saw Angel Reese put her hand in front of Kate, her face as trash talking Caitlin Clark. The anger they felt when they saw that And then the fact that sort of like the David Asselrod's voters of Chicago going for Vallas, I see a connection there. You're afraid, you're upset, you're fragile, and suddenly you're behaving very woke. All right, that's enough uh, for me on that rant and rave. I now turned to Sam Holloway, a leftist thinker, neighbor, dear friend of mine, dear friend of the show. Uh, and Sam, I'm going to do it again. I do it every time you come on the show. I know you object when I do it. I don't care, or you, or you don't think it's necessary, but I do. Uh, Sam is an employee of the city of Chicago, he's a firefighter. Leave him alone. Mayor Vallis, <laughs> gotta try that, Sam. Mayor elect like Vallis, if you should prevail. Let Sam has have his First Amendment protected rights. Okay, we let you go on the damn Prof show and say all that silly stuff. Nobody. In fact, you're being rewarded for it by the Northsiders of Chicago. So Sam Holloway, Sam Holloway has as much right to say, speak his mind as anybody else. Do not punish him. All right, Sam, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Ben.
2: Good to see you again, as always.
1: So, all right, let's deal. Why don't we get uh, your thoughts about Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese uh, out of the way first? Because it's all tied, I think, in my humble mind to what's going on here in the city of Chicago with our neighbors lining up to vote for Paul Vallis. Uh, So Uh, take it away.
2: Okay, there's there's a large, large segment of the society that loves a great hope. Because basketball, let's face it, uh, basketball at the higher levels is dominated by black people. There's no way around it. Uh, The NBA has changed a lot. Uh, There's been an infusion of international players Um, in the early days. Most of those international players were white, but now a lot more of them are black. So and there's a mix. Obviously, there's still some great, really good and great white players coming up, but the league is predominantly um, black. Um, College basketball predominantly black. Um, It's rare that you see high-level team especially on the men's college side that is predominantly white it's it's not there there are some out there but it's rare that you see them consistently you know reaching like the final four for example and when they do they get a shitload of love and uh, Caitlin Clark and this has nothing to do with her personally. Uh, she just managed, you know, because she's she really is good. You said it right. I, I have no doubt. She's fantastic. She's amazing. Uh, so as Iowa started, you know, kept progressing in the tournament, uh, she became, and by extension, her team sort of became that great white hope. Um, on the other hand you have lsu who was uh hadn't done too well the last couple of years they got a new coach who's not a new coach but it's a new coach to them uh, who had some controversy uh from some connections to her last job which was also a top flight women's basketball program but lsu was not expected to go very far in the tournament. Um, Angel Reese had gotten some press. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking she got some negative press because again, people don't like her style. And a lot of that has to do with what what some of us like to call unapologetic blackness. In other words, she was going to do her thing her way. Uh wear her eyelashes, you know, how she wanted to, you know, style herself, how she's and she's a fantastic player. And uh, but she would not, she was never going to get, no matter how well she played. Now, obviously, she's not as much of a scorer, a prolific scorer as Caitlin Clark. Uh, so it's not really a fair comparison. But and on that level, uh, as far as her accomplishments on the court, but there's no question she's a great women's player as well. Um, so they were sort of underdogs throughout much of the tournament, LSU, that is. So they had a chip on their shoulder that's understandable uh, they were they were in the same uh, same conference as highly regarded I think they repeat they were defending champs uh, South Carolina mm-hmm. now all this is important because South Carolina was had gone undefeated they were the favorites they didn't have any big stars on their team not really they were just play team solid team basketball all year they have a fan they have an amazing coach probably one of the best women's coaches ever and they're definitely you know it's it's Careful, it's close to say that they're they're developing into a dynasty on the level of the connecticut women's basketball team you know that's a sort of this is the giant that you have to kill to get to the championship right so all that said lSU was not really in that the championship conversation so they had a, a steeper hill to climb but they they did it their way they played you know good solid basketball all the way through the, through the tournament they got them to the final and every they were the underdog and I mean, not just in the box and the uh, on the betters line. They were the underdog because most of the country who was paying attention was rooting for Iowa. Yeah, again, a lot of it because Great White Hope, uh, LSU. They they beat that into the ground. They played out of their minds. They played. They. And what was funny was before the game, uh, you were referring to the trash talking that little. Face hand over the face thing that Caitlin Clark had been doing before, um, and I think one of the players on LSU said something, uh, and this was a strictly a basketball observation, not not a trash talking observation. I mean, maybe mildly trash talking. Um, the way Iowa beat beat South Carolina in the semifinal, uh, apparently, was they guarded the perimeter really aggressively. They they dared. Uh, I'm sorry, they didn't guard that. They guarded the paint aggressively and they dared South Carolina to shoot from the perimeter, right? South Carolina couldn't convert on those chances. And Iowa won, not by that much, but they won. Mm -hmm. So one of the, the South, the LSU player says, you do that to us. We're going to beat the crap out of you. Basically that there was, they said it was disrespectful, which is, you know, it was, it's, it's basketball. It's a strategy, you know, it's like Hacker Shaq. If Shaq doesn't learn to hit free throws, Follow them all day, you know. It's not disrespectful. It's basketball. But that that said, it was. I think they were trying to hype themselves up, and it worked because they shot LSU shot the lights out. Uh, Caitlin Clark got her points. Uh, Her shooting percentage was probably lower than she might have liked, but that's because she, you know, they shut down for the most part. Shut down the rest of the team, and and it was really, really a great victory. Now, the gesturing thing. Okay. Maybe it was a little over the top, but trash talking always is. That's the point. Uh, And you're you're talking about a team and a player who had a massive chip on their shoulder going up against the great white hope who everyone was hoping and expecting to win. And they handed it to them. They earned a little trash talking, I think. Uh, So that's it. That's all basketball. That's how, that's how it is. You know, that's what people come to see, especially when it's their team and their player. So, uh, yeah, people clutching their pearls and <laughs> reaching for the smelling salts. Yeah, there's 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 more than a little racism behind that. But you know, I I don't think the LSU Tigers are really give a shit. They're going to enjoy it. Uh, he, yeah.
1: Go ahead. Eh? No, that's the, about it. Well, the interesting thing, I go on and on. We're going to make the connection to politics in a little bit. But uh, you, may, you made an allusion to uh, the coach fellows you, Kim Mulkey, uh, who used to be the coach at Baylor. She's kind of a MAGA yes. person herself. Uh, and, and so <laughs> it's really weird. America is like in an odd place right now. So the quote unquote <laughs> great white hope team, yes, was Iowa because they're almost all white. Uh, and their superstar is a white player. Uh, they come from the, ho- the homeland, Iowa. Okay? The heartland, yeah. The heartland. Yeah, not the homeland. The heartland. Uh and so LSU is just, uh pretty much the, the starting lineup, anyway, all black. But their coach, it's a white woman who used to be a Baylor, kind of a she brought her team to the White House for, when they won the championship <laughs> to beat Trump. Very few teams did that. If it wasn't right. a, like a hockey team, you know, like <laughs> the white teams <laughs> go to the White House for Trump. Uh, any team with black people on it, mm, we don't want to go. Okay. Uh, and, uh, so that's where we're at in America. And she, uh, I don't know. I could take the deep dive on this. It's just like an interesting little side story. But to me, uh, the takeaway, the political takeaway is, uh, sort of just the general fragility of, Absolutely. Everyone from like Keith Olbermann to to David Axelrod to all these other uh, commentators who are so upset by what happens every freaking day in sports. Every day there's trash talking and like (laughs) every day. Patrick Beverly just one week ago in Chicago. No, in L.A., when he hit a hook shot over LeBron James, did a motion right in front of LeBron James' face saying, you're too small, <laughs> which is a joke because LeBron James is like five inches taller. Right. LeBron James didn't cry. You know, he, he didn't tweet out. He laughed, and then he beat the Bulls when it came to Chicago. Right. He got So it's <laughs> like I didn't see data, but Axelrod sending out a, a tweet going, I am outraged that Patrick Beverly would just – Act like you've been there
2: before. Poor Walter Payton. They keep using that quote. <laughs> well, 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 Ben, this this, this goes back to, to my uh, assertion, repeated assertion that I have made talking to you, especially here, that the, the, the average liberal, and this is probably more true the higher up the economic ladder you go, but the average liberal is more concerned with etiquette than justice. So what that translates into is, just, is little conditions like this um etiquette is very uh, etiquette is a funny thing because it it's conditional and it's generally when you're talking about rules of etiquette these generally aren't things that involve life or death situations uh issues of justice definitely do so when, when people are constantly getting worked up over etiquette breach, or what they consider to be breaches of etiquette, it's because that's where they're oriented and that's what's important to them. And especially when the etiquette involves um, maintaining the facade that everything is on the square, that everything is fair, because it, it behooves you. To, you know, this is a system that benefits you economically, socially, whatever, but it's built on injustice, often violent injustice. And you cannot have any attention drawn to that, or, or you're very careful about how you draw attention to that. So you're more concerned about keeping up the appearance than you are about actually doing anything about the injustice. Does that does this make sense to you? Yeah, what I'm absolutely. So, yeah. so they're more likely to get upset over you know was name? angel reese yes and angel reese doing the gesture than they are about caitlin clark doing the gesture because caitlin J- clark is the darling she can do no wrong they're the great white hope they're the you know in their minds it's it's the rocky story you know which that whole movie was really implausible but that's not that's beside the point um <laughs> Uh, the, the the difference here is in that Kate, Caitlin Clark actually is a phenomenal basketball player. Yeah. Uh, so so so, so yeah. you know, but but you have an actual team of underdogs, which was LSU, the actual team who had actually gone through, you know, who had been they've been beaten by the, the the I think I don't know how many, how many times, at least once they got beaten by uh, South Carolina during yeah. the season. Uh They've lost a couple of tough games throughout the year uh they were not expected to go to the final four much less win it all so here they are they played through the lights out you should be cheering them everyone Mm -hmm. should be cheering that that's an underdog story but it didn't fit it didn't fit because they they are not white uh they don't come from the white heartland that's not what people wanted to see and they 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 didn't just um, – I, I, it's hard to say that they embar- – I wouldn't say they embarrassed Iowa uh, because there's no – you know, when a team plays that well, it's not embarrassing to mm-hmm. lose to them. I mean, it, there's – I don't – I think they could even – if they were playing like that, they could have eaten anybody. Yeah. Well, okay. That's not, that's not even important to people. Bro. That's what's yeah. sad.
1: No, the, the, the uh, underdog narrative – Uh, in the way it's presented in sports, and it does go back to Rocky in many ways. Uh, Well, it goes back further than that, but just definitely in modern culture, Rocky, the Sylvester Stallone movie from the 1970s. The notion uh, that the white athlete who is not nearly as talented as the black athlete, athlete through brains and heart and determination and hustle will overcome all the disadvantages he or she faces To either, in the case of Rocky One, give the the black champion everything he can deal with, or beat him. That's the narrative. So, like the the narrative for LSU to be the underdogs against Iowa doesn't fit the conventional (laughs) racial trapping. So they 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 rewrite everything. Okay.
2: Yeah. Uh, Well, yeah. yeah. Well, look at look at look at what I mean. Not to get too far off into the Rocky thing, but yeah, you're absolutely. Look at how that's, that's, people fell for that shit. I fell for it when I watched it the first time. It didn't dawn on me when I was like a, <laughs> a young teenager watch or whatever I was at that age when yeah. this movie came out, that it was always the, generally speaking, the black champion would always, you know, you know remember, uh, what, what was his name? Uh, Joe Lewis, when he fought Max Schmeling. Yeah. You can go all, I, all the way. all way wasn't around, to, uh, but yeah, I know the story. Right, yeah but, but The story, you go all the way back to Jack Johnson fighting. Every white white meathead they threw up against him. He beat them all, and every time they didn't. The, the white people didn't get it. It's like this guy's the champion because he's the best. He's good. He trains. You know. He's smart. He knows. What he's – and they put all these white guys up against him. They always spit on the white guy. He always beat the crap out of them. <laughs> and they and they got mad every time because it wasn't about boxing. No, it wasn't. It wasn't about, it wasn't about the sport. Yes. And just this, and this, this thing with with Caitlin Clark, and and it's not about basketball, yeah. because if it were purely about basketball, they would they would be given all the love to LSU and saying, "Hey, Iowa, Caitlin Clark's great. Iowa tried their best, but LSU was on today, and it would, that would be the end of it."
1: Uh, all right. Well, we'll make the transition to politics because that's a okay. perfect transition. Uh, You said it's not about basketball. It's about something else. And I would argue that it's not about uh, politics and policies. Uh, It's about something else here in Chicago with Paul Vallis against Brandon Johnson. Uh, Otherwise, why would our neighbors, as I've said many times and will continue to say, uh, be lining up? To vote for Paul Vallis, a man whose political beliefs over the last three years (laughs) violate everything our neighbors supposedly believe in with great fervency. Again, one more time, the city of Chicago voted 85 percent for Joe Biden against Donald John Trump in 2020. And the north side of Chicago and many of the wards for Paul Vallis will do very well. The vote for uh, Joe Biden approached 70 percent. If he can go above 70 percent. And now these same voters are voting for Paul Vallis. And so I would say, Sam, just as the the passion that the David Axelrods of the world felt for Caitlin Clark is not about basketball, I would say that the um, adoration <coughs> that uh, Northside voters have for Paul Vallis is not about politics. That's my uh, thoughts and have been my thoughts since this uh, second cycle began, your
2: response—I—I will—I think my disagreement with you will probably be largely semantic. So, but let's that said, I think it is about politics. But I think people's politics are, like you were just saying a moment ago, are not what they seem to be most of the time. And again, this goes back to etiquette versus morality. Um, the Joe Biden. Versus Biden versus Trump is not is not the best analogy, I think, for Vallis versus uh, Johnson. I think a, a better analogy would be Biden versus Bernie Sanders, uh, because we all know what everyone knows what Joe Biden is. People can lie about it. But this is Jim Crow Joe. This is a guy with those buddies with a, a lot of Jim Crow senators and congressmen back in the day. Never disavowed that. No one ever made him. This is a guy who's the author of some of the most racist, brutal policies that we're live, still living with today. I'm not—he didn't just vote for him; he was the author of like the crime bill, but one of the authors. And he, the stuff he used to say back when he was promoting these bills—I—I—I'm—you I'm, know—it astonishes me that people lined up to vote for this guy. Um, now, again, I got my beef with Bernie Sanders. I think he primarily gets in the presidential race to play sheepdog to get the younger people and the lefties riled up so that they'll come out and vote, and with the hope that some of them you know, will get dragged into the general election to vote for whatever stiff the Democrats put up there <laughs> instead of Bernie. And it yeah. and it, it, ha- it worked this time. It didn't work in 2016, but it worked in 2020. Uh, and that was largely because, again, like I've said before, the Hillary Clinton's Pied Piper strategy of promoting Trump worked like a charm. It just took an extra four years. So. Um, that said, um, I, I don't think people are forgetting their politics. I think their politics are getting more honest. Um, uh, Lori Lightfoot's a, sort of a semi-reactionary. She posed, pre- she presented herself as this progressive because she's black, she's queer, uh, a lesbian. Uh, you know, I use the term, I gotta be careful about using the term queer. I'm Some of my, my, uh, Friends have you know who are uh, you know LGBTQ plus say oh it's okay to use queer it's a general term then it's more like ah maybe so I'll just say I'll be more specific she's a lesbian she's black woman um, she checks all those boxes but she was also a corporate lawyer uh, no friend of the average citizen um, so people she was she it was easy to pretend that a vote for her was a progressive vote. If you if you didn't look too far, if you didn't peek around the curtain and look at her record and who was actually supporting her, and a lot of a lot of liberals did that, I think they voted for Lori Lightfoot. Now, of course, by that time it was, you know, we got to the general election, and that that time it was between her and Preckwinkle. Which, you know, pick your poison. You know, uh, <laughs> I, I I picked Preckwinkle because. It, you know, and I think we would have been better off. But would it have been like? Is it was it a slam dunk decision? No. Uh, this time, it's my belief, and and this gets back to what are people afraid of. Um, and and I and I think I know what Hunter Thompson and Warren Zevon were trying to say when they say you're a different person when you're scared. Uh, maybe they were being tongue in cheek because I don't think you're a different person. I think. Your true values come out when you're scared. And and it, it's also very important to ask, what are you afraid of? And like you pointed out, um, most of the violence, and I, I, I tend to shy away from using the term crime because crime itself has is highly loaded politically a political construct. Um, as 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 one of my favorite columnists, uh who who obviously will probably never get a regular column in the new york times or one of our papers uh alec karakatsanis he he writes about propaganda a lot he writes about you know how media portray you know quote unquote crime issues and crime and punishment issues and uh so anyway long story short uh also the reader oh my god you obviously now, now, Ben, you're a fantastic columnist for the reader, but this Anthony Ellers is that how you pronounce it? Anthony Ellers is amazing. I was I was reading a couple of his columns, like yesterday and today, and he spells it out. It's like there, and this is, he's not the first to say this. I I volunteer with an organization which has, for for years since it, its inception, has been subsisting on donations. They, they're, they're getting like grants and stuff now, but there's there's all these little groups throughout Chicago which are doing great community work and they're scrambling for resources. So, and 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 the biggest budget in the city has got to be, well, one of the biggest line items in our city budget is the police. And they're talk, always talking about giving them more money. We need more police. We need more money. What about, well, as Anthony Ellis points out, more policing does not, reduce quote-unquote crime and as i would put it as i would paraphrase it paraphrase it more policing more more state violence more focus on punishment does not reduce harm if you want to reduce harm you have to invest in people you have to invest in things that build community that provide people make sure people's needs are provided for and they, they can build communities so that. When there's there's less stress upon the communities, less less stress upon individuals, less stress upon households, you can build. Then people are not seeing each other with fear; they're not seeing their neighbors as a threat. Uh, th- th- I could go on and on, but mm-hmm. if you invest in people as opposed to violence, then these numbers go down, these 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 so-called crime numbers go down, the harm goes down, the violence goes down. But it's my estimation that, that the, the, the uh, this candidacy for valus what this represents, and this is why you see all these people with the valus signs out, it's, and, and again, I got my criticisms of Brandon Johnson, we can get to that, but essentially to me, this this general election and you know chicago mayoral election is okay Brandon johnson represents more or less for better or worse okay we're not going to solve everything overnight but we're going to focus more on investing in community whether he means it whether it actually would happen or not that's almost immaterial at this point but that's what that represents that 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 at least shred of hope, or at least a posture of hope towards, let's get away from the the fear and 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 the and the orientation of violence. Let's let's try leaning toward spending more money on people. That that's what that represents, and it's no surprise that he has endorsement of Chicago Teachers Union, and that's what has sort of propelled him to prominence the other book paul valis represents to me from my perspective you know what Fuck it let's prove fascism let's fuck, fuck it all we're going to lean on the fascism now and everybody who's come out to endorse him is telling you that in so many words we don't need more social programs we don't need to invest in communities we like the violence just where it is. As long as we keep it contained to these people who, we're, who we've written off, we'll be okay. Because we're going to we're going to eventually force those people out anyway. This is what we've been doing for the last few decades. We've been containing the violence, depriving these people of social spending until some of them either are dead or they leave. And we're going to keep that process up. Because it's hey, property values are rising. Uh, More money is flowing through Chicago. Crime numbers are uh, the crime numbers are basically a golden goose. Because as long as these people keep killing each other and the violence doesn't spill into our neighborhoods too much, we can use it. You know, we can use that to keep investing more into constantly forcing them out which of you know again opens up more property to development justifies spending more public resources on development all of us win and and it's a process which has, it's I call it uh, uh, you could look at it as a, as a neoliberal thing or whatever uh, but now it's <laughs> as it reaches this stage it's you know neoliberalism and fascism kind of go hand in hand um, well, I would say liberalism and fascism, but in this specific moment, neoliberalism and fascism, you know, they depend on each other. Um, one is the left hand, one's the right hand, whatever. doesn't, yeah, however you want to see that. So that's where we are. And okay. all these people... Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry.
1: I, uh, I believe this is uh, one of the first elections, correct me if I'm wrong, where you actually... Uh, voted for a mainstream candidate, and um, you may have voted the last time for uh, Brandon Johnson. I can't, re- I just cannot remember, uh, Sam. Oh,
2: in the in the primary?
1: Yes, in the first golf. Yes,
2: I, I did in the first golf. All
1: right. So uh, I I meant to ask you this, uh, in light of your view about uh, just like the overall trends in politics, who you voted for in this election? Uh, in this current election, this runoff, and why? Because you told me you actually did vote for someone, and I assume, based on what you just said, that it was Brandon Johnson. Uh, and I know you, you've you been pretty honest about your voting habits. You've come on the show and, dis- and talked about not voting for Obama in 012 and 08. Uh, but uh, I think you voted for Jill Stein. My memory is correct. Uh, and um, But this time around, you voted for Brandon Johnson. Why?
2: Well, um, mainly because even in the first first round, there were <laughs> there were no left wing candidates, uh, and I voted from the first round because he got the teachers union endorsement. Um, and in the second, now at this at this stage, I decided to come on out because I think uh, I'm I'm not a, a big fan of that whole hold their feet to the fire business because. You know, you dance, with, you dance with the one you brought. Mm-hmm. And, and if, if you brought them for a reason, you figure they're going to dance a certain way and you ain't going to change them once they get there. So, But in that, that said, uh, Brandon Johnson has said some questionable things, um, primarily his sort of backtracking on the police funding issue. I don't know if it was a backtrack or if he was just intentionally vague when he said the first thing. And then this, the second thing was may, maybe seems like a backtrack. from, But anyway, uh, that said, I, I think it it gives us him, having him in office will give us room to fight that we will not have with Paul Vallis. Let, let me put it more specifically. It'll give us room to fight for some good things as opposed, I mean, we'll, the people on the ground who are doing the great work will be fighting no matter what. They're going to be doing what they're doing, whether it's Vallis or Johnson. That's not going to change. But to see some of that fight out out in the communities perhaps translate into policy at the city level and maybe a little support somewhere from the city government, I think that's more likely to happen with a Brandon Johnson administration than it is with a Paul Vallis administration. And I do believe that is exactly why so many people are voting for Paul, for Paul Vallis, because they don't want that. They want to get this over with. They want to clean up the city, which by which they mean make sure this violence that, that we're talking about, hearing on the news every night, stays confined where it is. Let it get as bad as it needs to get. Put more cops on the street. You know, It's sort of like a, an, uns, an unspoken build that wall. Mm-hmm. And let them, let them kill each other until there's either, there's so few of them left that they're not a problem anymore or they all move out. And then we'll redevelop the whole city and we'll have a neoliberal paradise. But the key is right now, people are choosing violence over, uh, I hate to use this word, but I will define it. They're choosing violence over hope. And when I say hope, I don't mean Obama-style hope. I mean the the Mariam Kaba hope. Hope as a discipline, hope, which it's it's a moral hope, a hope that has to be earned. Uh, It takes work. And I don't think people are willing to do that work. They're looking at their property values and they're saying this is most important to me. And I'd rather spend the money on the violence that will protect my property values, Mm -hmm. so they believe, than I would investing money in the harder work, or what seems like the harder work, of building a city that could potentially work for everyone. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. I, and I, if you yeah. ask if you ask half these people, they probably would. They might they might blanch, or they might say, "What the hell are you talking about?" Because a lot of people don't think that far. Mm-hmm. But then they don't have to, because the choices are set out there for them in a way that they don't have to think about. It. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, I,
1: here. Uh, I mean, this this is probably not the time or place to do a deep dive on property uh, taxes and property values. Uh, but I've, uh, with each passing year, I come to realize that our system of financing uh, schools uh, and pensions and police and fire uh, with the property tax, by and large, Uh, is one of the most cynical (laughs) maneuvers that you could possibly imagine because so much is invested uh, in your home even more than normal. The city desperately needs values to be rising so they could get the money they need to pay the essential bills. Uh, You're tapping people who can't really afford to pay it because in many cases, their home value bears no relationship to their income, which is particularly mm-hmm. the case or where you and I live. And uh, so then we have these absurdities. Like, I think both candidates, uh, Vallis and Johnson, have declared they will not raise property taxes. But Vallis, this is a big thing. I will not. I will. He, sometimes I think he's he actually said he's going to cut property taxes. And, but I'm going to hire more police. <laughs> and I'm going to make good on my pension obligations. And I'm, I'm like, these are all absurdities you say them and go ahead yeah you just it will not happen you cannot hire more police without raising property taxes
2: go ahead and behind that absurdity is the is the is the uncomfortable truth which is most of these people will be happy to pay more not happy necessarily they may begrudgingly pay more but they will pay more if it means their property value is protected in their mind in their mind from their perception again and and this is a process which you know has its own sort of shape and character here in Chicago, as, as we see, at least you know regarding this election. But this is definitely a national trend, uh, and it's getting worse. I think we're we're in a we're in a very dangerous place right now because, and I've told you this before, and I'm I'm not a shy shy about saying it again. I think the Obama presidency. Was a really bad turning point because not only did he embrace uh, George W. Bush's—I um, mean, he didn't just turn the uh, you know the other cheek. He embraced George W. Bush's horrible, brutal foreign policy record. They said, "Nope, we're good with that. We're going to look forward," and they and they proceeded to do their own uh, in the in the Obama way. But also his domestic policies were now, well, not quite as directly brutal, but it was no walk in the park for most of this country anyway. Um, you know, you know how many seats the Democratic Party lost during mm-hmm. his years in office. Some of that was racism, yes, but a lot of it was the absolute disillusionment of the, the you know the ostensible Democratic base to Obama and the Democrats' policies um this 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 really harsh hard and harsh neoliberal push uh it really gutted a lot of people uh and there were opportunities to do so much better and it was just totally ignored uh so and but as far as elections and, and political candidates what what that has done is i think you're, you're seeing a definite undeniable rightward shift some candidates You know, they campaign on being progressive, so and so and so. But when they get into office and there's a lot of black candidates who fit this bill, uh, the ones that I've noticed definitely are black. Uh, They're pushing some of the most reactionary policies once they you know, get into the mayor's office in some of these cities. I mean, one of the most obvious, obviously, is Eric Adams in New York. He's a fascist. I mean, I'm not he's he's not just a neoliberal. He's a fascist. And it's 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 almost comical. I mean, I think even somewhere Paul Verhoeven was like, "Shit, I can't make a movie about that. It's too on the nose." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, London, London Breed in San Francisco, another right-wing politician who, you know, pro- campaigned as a progressive, and you know, uh, and there's there's other ones. The mayor of Atlanta, uh, what's his name? Bowser. That was D.C. Bowser was D.C. Mm-hmm. I can't think of it, but all these like black, you know, some of them are women, but they all some of them saw themselves as, you know, quote-unquote progressives, and they get in the office and it's all this reactionary policy and rhetoric. Um, not, And that's not even getting into, like, black police chiefs and stuff. That That's a whole other level, you know. So it, it used to be, when, like, before Obama came into office, all your black villains were on the right. You know, uh, Condi Rice, and that whole, that, that whole uh, you know, a lot of them weren't, elected officials. But you had a few elected officials here and there that were black, like black Republicans. Uh, Then you had all the black right wing pundits. And they were like comically villainous. I mean, just just saying really stupid shit over and over. But it, it made white racists like really happy to hear this out of a black mouth. But here comes Obama, who was out of his own mouth, an admirer of Reagan, out of, by his own admission, his policies were, some of his policies were to the right of Nixon and people still loved him and they still do. And I think there's a bit, of, it's it's so weird because there's this disconnect almost. Uh No one talks about what he did in office, not really, but they still love him because he he never had a scandal. You know, he never had a scandal. I mean, if you call like destroying, an entire country, you know, Libya, uh, That's at it, that doesn't qualify as a scandal to the average liberal. That's just, you know, well, that's foreign policy, don't worry about that. You know. But anyway, but, but my point is, we're, we're, we've seen a, a hard right shift in, in our, in our politics. And the key part, the key fulcrum of that, the key turning or whatever I, the word is, where the, where something turns, I guess that would be the fulcrum, would be the Democrats because, the Republicans, they're just going to try to race even farther right. They're going to try to stay out farther right from the Democrats. So they've already gone fascist. You know, that's a fat. The GOP is a fascist party. It's an objectively fascist party now. They're doing everything they can to be as fascist as they can. Yeah. The problem is the Democrats aren't pulling in the other direction. They're trying to occupy as much of this the rightward space that the as they can, and, and essentially force the GOP farther right. So and this translates into more aggressive foreign policy, um, less domestic social spending, um, attacks if not a tax on workers' rights directly, which we have seen from the Biden administration, definitely abandon them to some extent, where they have to rely on the courts, essentially, and win a few victories here and there in the courts because they're getting no support from the White House or from most of these state houses. Now, there's, there's been some exceptions. And the, this war on trans people, another example. You're seeing a little pushback in some of these state houses, and it's very great to see. But the GOP knows what it's doing. Mm-hmm. They know. They know. They can see what the, the Democrats are willing to sacrifice. And they, they seize on it. And that's more ground gain for them. And it looks like... In many cases, the Democrats are quite willing to let them have it because none of it, and as a matter of fact, it's not that it doesn't threaten what they really uh, value, it actually helps strengthen it. Um, It's almost like uh, I, I think of like USA is basically not exactly, but it's, we're, we're in a situation that's very similar to, to Weimar Germany.
1: Well, if I before we I let you go down that path, that's why I find on so many levels upsetting that prominent liberals would support Ballas, and because you just got finished explaining, there's limits to democratic opposition. Uh, countrywide to where Republicans are going, where MAGA is going, and yet there is some opposition. And yes. Paul Ball- in Paul Vallis, Chicago, is a candidate who was united with Republicans over the last two years. On, I'm just let's talk about the pandemic and resistance to testing and mask wearing, and he and the notion. That government is going too far when it tries to, I don't know, protect people. (laughs) And the notion that somehow or other, the only vulnerable people, the only people who are going to die with COVID are people who are going to die anyway. So nobody cares about them. And we have this freedom. We should have this freedom to do whatever we want uh, if it just means that some person with diabetes is going to die. You know, who cares about that? And that's what that's the side Vallis was on. And then you have Richard Durbin, our senator, our Democratic senator, endorsing him. Arnie Duncan, Barack Obama's <laughs> education chief, who has been for the last two or three years, Sam, talking about we have to rethink policing. Talk, we 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 can't just dedicate ourselves to these old outmoded. Conventional thinking about policing, he has endorsed Valles, and he argues that he thinks it's sort of like Nixon going to China. Well, he didn't say that, but that's kind of where he's at. Like, (laughs) I'm going to embrace everything that I've said we should reject with the hope that this person will use his connections with the fraternity order police to get them to voluntarily have a new approach to policing. I, I'm like, I.
2: I <laughs> okay. It's an utter betrayal, it, Sam. It's an utter betrayal. Uh, Go ahead. Yes, but it's not surprising, uh, especially in, in this area. Do, do you remember during the and this goes back to the pandemic issue? Because I think it was very important, uh, very important that you brought that up. I'm glad you did. Uh, okay, I'm going to name some schools for you because my daughter ain't going to be going to love them, and I don't give a shit what people think. Uh, so anyway, um, there's some public schools in our area, highly regarded, and we know how highly regarded those schools are because people pay a premium on rent and, and property, you know, whatever, home prices to get their kids into those schools. At least they did. Well, come the pandemic, and a lot of these parents are working from home. These, <laughs> these Coonley and Bell parents are working from home. Oh my God. And they don't want their kids around no more. Yeah. They want their kids back in school. Oh Lord, yeah. So the one union in the city that was not gonna let its workers be exposed to this lethal virus which wound up killing over a million people. Yeah. And 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 not and here's the thing. They were looking out for their own membership, but they also realized, and I think some the union some union representative actually said this: a lot of these kids are gonna come to school and catch this virus, and they're gonna take it home Mm -hmm. and they're gonna and it, and this is what happened. A lot of the this this happened. A lot of how many millions of kids now are have lost one or both of their their parents or they've lost caregivers because of this virus. They're they're orphaned by COVID. Uh, I don't know that there's a solid number, but I'm pretty sure it's in the millions nationwide. This is what C- Chicago Teachers Union was saying, yeah. and I fully agree with them. Even though I had a kid in CPS, and I wanted her to go to school, I wanted her to get her education but not at the expense of killing her or endangering her classmates or her classmates' families or her teachers and their families. You know, so, but a lot of these parents around here, they got good insurance, I guess. Uh, Whatever. I don't know why they think, they think they're, they have some magic privilege that the virus wasn't going to hurt them. And statistically, they had some there was foundation for that reasoning, um, so there was two Catholic schools, two small Catholic schools in our area, Saint Matthias, and what is it, something Angels or whatever, I can't remember the name, but they're both like around, on that Western Avenue corridor, the vicinity of Lawrence. Now, as I recall, before the pandemic, both of those schools, one of them, they were both of them had such low enrollment. There was a danger that they were both going to have to shut down entirely or consolidate. But along comes the pandemic. And CTU fights and says, nope, we ain't going in those buildings. And, and they, they didn't say, just say, no, we're not going back. They had a list of things they wanted to make things safer for everyone to come back. And and the city dragged its feet. Oh, no, 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 this is not necessary, blah, blah, blah. And the CTU fought for this stuff, and they want it. And gradually, kids went back, but that wasn't fast enough for these parents. So some of them pulled their kids out of school, out of the public schools. Let's just say enough of them got pissed off and threw a tantrum and put their kids in the Catholic schools. And now both those schools are thriving again. Two schools that were either going to have to shut down—now, <laughs> granted, they're small schools—but yeah. two schools that were either going to have to shut down or consolidate, both are thriving again because enough CPS parents didn't want to have their kids in the house. <laughs> and, and were mad at the teachers' oh union Lord, yeah. for, for, for wanting to protect their own members and the kids and their families. Yeah. So this, this is this not surprising to me that Paul Vallis is going to do well in this area. Oh, my God. Because, uh, yeah. it's that it, again, it goes back to the harm. I'm not thinking about crime. We can call it crime or whatever, but I think of it as harm. As long as the harm stays in those areas, as long as we can isolate the harm in those areas, these are people who would rather spend money on more state violence than they would on making things better for people. Yeah.
1: You know, uh, you're preaching the choir on this point. Uh, listen, I was not in this situation. My uh, children are grown. So I didn't have to deal with this. I didn't. That's why I, I, you know, I ducked this one. I missed this one. All right. I avoided this one. So it's every, anything I say, I recognize it's easy for me to say. That said, Yes. (laughs) When I hear Paul Ballas go on and on about the price that children in Chicago paid uh, because the Chicago teachers union uh, refused to go back into the classrooms uh, that were, potentially very dangerous, potentially. When I hear him go on, I'm like, I cannot believe how willfully ignorant people in Chicago are, including Paul Vallis, to think that the inequities that have plagued this city for as long as I can remember, and as long as Paul Vallis can remember, is the result of the teachers not wanting to go back into a classroom To use those inequities, to use those disparities in performance between wealthier kids and poorer kids as an excuse
2: to blame the teachers is just willful ignorance on the part. It's profoundly cynical. As you wrote in your own column, Ben, this motherfucker, Valor, he was instrumental in, in, in solidifying and expanding those inequities. And not just that. His, part of his job which he did seem to delight in was and that maybe that's just my perspective but anyway part of his job was to set it up so that they could blame those inequities on the people who were suffering from them like that focus on high stakes testing that was one of his big things and penalize the schools that weren't getting high test scores it was this this was his po- these were his policies He is part of. It is in. He is not entirely the author of today's situation, but he was definitely part of that process—the neoliberalization of 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 Chicago public schools. He was definitely a a key player in it. That's why he was here, and he went on to again, as you wrote, he went assholes around the country loved it so much they hired (laughs) him to do the same thing in their cities. So, oh man it is
1: profoundly so, right, so, cynical so,
2: so, so, so this is why it's not ignorance this is profound cynicism yeah that's true. And, 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 yeah. And, and again I I yeah. could give you if you give me time I could come up with a list of co- criticism of Brandon Johnson but it, it is not even close to, you know to endorse this this man at this stage that to me, that's what they're saying. You know what? Fuck it. Fascism. Let's just do a little more fascism. Let's just All lean right. into it.
1: All right. We will. Uh, I knew this would happen. Uh, we didn't get to everything on the list, but so what? That's how it goes when Sam and I get sit down. Uh, we'll close with this.
2: Uh,
1: <laughs> uh, black Chicagoans who have endorsed Ballas, Prominent.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let me, let me, we'll, we'll pick on one because you brought her up when we were talking earlier. And again, personally, I, I've met her. She seemed like a nice lady, but she's emblematic of this, this whole process. So, okay. You know, I think, let's say everything before, but, but all right. So, uh, you know, my daughter's a student at Whitney Young. And as I was telling you earlier, I think Whitney Young is what I, what I labeled it recently, uh, neoliberal Hogwarts. And it is, the epitome of what I was just referring to—the neoliberalization of public schools—it um, used to be a magnet school where, uh, well, let, let's not even talk about that because that's—that's a. I know we're out of time. So my point being, the whole selective enrollment system was was sort of um, designed and expanded so that parents with some means, those more well-off parents. Would be willing to use the Chicago public school system, but the flip side of that is that it it could justify the abandonment, materially and otherwise, of the kids who didn't have the means. Um, and there's so the schools appeal to a certain type of household, and I admit, I fully admit right here that I fell for that sales pitch as a parent. <laughs> and I regret it I've ever, ever since I, I've re- ever since her, her the end of her eighth grade. I've regretted it, and I regret yeah. it that we didn't put down the hammer and put her somewhere else. But the problem is, again, this is the other side. Where are you going to put her? We thought this would be a great fit for her. She thought so. And, and in some ways it is. There's kids who thrive in these environments, but there's kids that don't. And what
1: are
2: you talking about? So oh Rebecca says hello, by the way.
1: <laughs> uh okay very informal so in the Ben Jarovsky show.
2: show. Oh yeah, that's cool. So uh so anyway, this was for, for like a quarter century. She was the principal. Dr. Kenner was the principal of Neoliberal Hogwarts. She did a fantastic job. And I don't mean that's. I mean that sincerely. She did a fantastic job. But what that represents is, and, and I think there's a chance if, if what you said is correct, that she may be, if Valice is elected, she might wind up to be CEO of Chicago Public Schools. Now, that's a hell of a that's a hell of a payoff. But uh, but anyway, I, I don't think this is a question of one hand washing the other as much as if this is what these people truly believe. They're leaning into the fascism, too. They've got theirs. And they represent the people who do. Black, white, Latino, whatever. And they're all leaning in. Instead of saying, you know what? What we need to do is we need to stop spending money on more, more violence. We don't need to control the violence and isolate the harm. We need to fix, we need to start investing in these beleaguered communities, give them the resources they need, talk to the people, work with them. You know, uh, No, that's not the choice. Choice is, you know what? Fuck it, fascism. Let's get some more cops on the street, lock some more of these people up, and you know, isolate this violence until they're either all dead or they all move move someplace else. Then it'll be neoliberal heaven for the rest of us. I think that they may not say that, and that they're smart enough to avoid it. Most of them, but that's what the, that's. But when they're when they're endorsing violence, that's what they're asking for
1: well uh we will close with this uh someone just texted me the uh the latest uh turnout numbers uh from the city of chicago and the person who texted it to me is a vala supporter Uh, i get we're gonna close the way we began uh for the whole weekend i heard uh just all these Valis supporters crying and weeping and moaning over trash talking by uh, Angel Reese and how unfair it was that she did that to uh, Caitlin Clark. Uh, And now on election day, the trash talking that I receive from Valis supporters is (laughs) increasing as they send me gleefully the turnout results that show uh, in predominantly white Valis wards, a much higher turnout than in black wards where Brandon Johnson needs to win. Uh, so we'll close with that one. Uh, Sam, we seem it at the early projections in terms of just raw turnout, uh, are favorable to Vallis, and the trash talking has already begun. I'm already the recipient of it. I just smile because unlike, uh, the Caitlin Clark lovers of America. I'm made of sterner stuff, Sam, and I can withstand their trash talking. Uh,
2: Look at it this way, Ben. Most of these people doing the trash talking, and this, and, and most of the a lot of these people supporting Ballas, this includes a lot of my colleagues, if they even bother to vote, they're mostly probably going to vote for Ballas. You know what? Most of them are going to be gone from this city within five to ten years. Maybe a little more. They're, they're not going to even be here. So that just i don't know maybe it doesn't really help you or me but it really makes them look like worse people <laughs> yeah
1: yeah they voted for Vallis. uh and so you and i our property taxes go up 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 uh as they flee to florida all right sam holloway thank you very much this has become a ritual uh, on election days with <laughs> sam uh we'll have to keep this going he is my dear friend neighbor one of the leftiest guys i know <laughs> And uh, not afraid of that. Uh, He embraces his inner leftiness. Uh, (laughs) So thank you very much for coming on the show, Sam. I appreciate it. Well,
2: thank you, Ben. Take care, Chris.
1: All right. I want to thank producer Chris. Outstanding job as he always does. And I'm sure Sam will agree when I say give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. Peace of love, everybody.
0: Don't forget, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more at chicagoreader.com. And find more from The Ben Jarofsky Show all over the internet on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.